0: Please.
1: Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also, become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Uh, you had mentioned Lenny White al- already. He's been on the show, Love Lenny. Um, and and 29, that record that you're on with them, was that one of the ones that had uh, any of the hits like Peanut Butter or Kid Stuff? or Oh, yeah,
0: I did three albums with Lenny. The first one was Best of Friends. Uh, that had Peanut Butter on it. Yes, I'm on all that stuff. All those three albums, uh, you know, I played guitar on. That was, I mean, working with Lenny was just, wow. It was really very special. And uh, the band was so, the band was so amazing. And, you know, and, and Lenny, and I've spoken to him subsequent uh, to, to uh, that, but uh, really complimented him on how the heck did he keep a bunch of crazy talented players, you know, just keep everybody focused. It was really, I mean, thinking, think, looking back on it, man, it, 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 it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because we were young and we were crazy and everybody was playing their asses off and, and just trying to harness that and kind of direct that in a way was really, you know, my, my hat's off to Lenny for that.
1: You played live shows too with that lineup. Yeah. Uh
0: Yeah. I toured a lot with, we toured quite a bit. We toured quite a bit. It was great and recorded. uh, It was, it was a great experience, man. That was kind of like, you know, that was like university. You know, it's like you know all the different things and like different types of education and working with Lenny was really interesting because we were doing that sophistic funk stuff, but also we were doing a lot of stuff from the fusion side of him live. So when we played live, there was a, it was a really comprehensive, uh, comprehensive uh, uh, circle of music from 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 Lenny's career. So it was really
1: very cool. That was really cool. He's had such a great varied career musically i mean he's gone everywhere
0: uh incredible it's an incredible incredible drummer i mean he's an artist he's a drummer he's a composer he's composing classical music now i mean he's just uh he's he's an inspiration
1: i had uh, lynn davis on just uh, the other day and she actually mentioned she appeared on american bandstand i think with 29
0: yes oh yeah i remember that i think we did that show with Shalimar. And I think we taped, um, you know, they, they tape more than one show. And I think Shalimar was there that, that day. And, and, uh, yeah, Lynn's an old friend. Oh my God. You know, just a dear friend, an amazing singer. Absolutely amazing.
1: And Bernard Edwards, you spent some time working with him from Chic
0: and my dear friend Bernard. Uh, I miss him. Uh, he was another mentor of mine, uh, I would, I'd finished, um, I'd finished touring with, uh, let's see, I figured, like, work with Lenny up until around 81, then I worked with Stanley Clark and George Duke, the uh, Duke Clark Duke Project, did a lot of touring with them, and then I did a stint with Blondie, Blondie's last tour, you know, uh, this was long, this is 82, so I, I worked with Blondie and then after that, I decided to I, I want to stay in I want to stay in New York. I want to kind of crack the studio scene. I really want to get my foot in that door because it's a really kind of very a very clicky kind of dynamic at least it was back then, you know, and uh, you just need to need to wait for your opportunity or or try to make an opportunity. so I reached out to Bernard. Because I had heard that he and Niall had kind of like parted ways. They were just really working on their, on their, on their um, solo producer's uh, career, respectively. And I had heard that Bernard was working on a, a solo album. And I called the studio up and I said, and I speak to Bernard. Uh, and uh, they put me through to him. And, you know, I'd known him, uh, but I hadn't seen him in a while. But, but we'd known each other, but we'd never really played together. And I said, hey, I, I heard you're, you know, making a record. And, you know, if, if you, you know, I'd love to play on it. If, if there are any opportunities for me to play on or any songs you want me to uh, to play on, uh, you know, just let me know. I'd love to do it. He says, man, uh, why don't you come down to the studio tomorrow? He said. <laughs> so um, uh, I went down to the studio the next day. And uh, when I got to the studio, he was up, up the street on uh, at a, uh, there was a Thai restaurant on Broadway and uh, 54th and um was it 8th avenue it was 8th avenue and 54th street and um i walked in there and he was you know he was having a, a bite to eat and i sat down and spoke with him and and he said man come down to the studio tomorrow man bring your guitar and play on this track so um went down to the studio and it's first time i met jason corsaro you know who was uh became one of my my best friends as well and uh Worked on this track and Bernard loved the studio, man. He just let me do my thing, you know. So a couple of hours later, he comes back and he was he loved it. You know, he says, "Man, come on down tomorrow, man. I got plenty more shit for you to play on. So come on down." So that began our association, and and we we played on so many so many uh, projects through the years, and uh, we collaborated with this band that we had called Distance, and and uh, I, I learned so much from Bernard because his he had enormous ears and he he knew how to get get to the source of what made a song great. So he was able to reduce as he was producing. So he was able to strip down, you know, what was not necessary to kind of create a, a, a diamond. And, uh, and uh, it was, a wow, what a great bassist. What a great bassist. I mean, he just had a, an undeniable feel and sound to his, uh, his approach on the instrument, very unique. And um, it's really in- it's really interesting that the great players, there's, there's something to their note value that is different. You know, um, yes, it may be a quarter note or a dotted eighth or whatever, you know, but the way they're hitting it, the way they're attacking it and the way they're playing it, it just seems to have an old a style of its own within the context of what is written or what it is. And that's what he had in, in just in droves which made him uh, a unique, a unique basis with a really uh, a, an amazing voice on the instrument.
1: Mm-hmm. It sounds like he was a, a pleasure to work with too. So,
0: oh yeah, he was. You know, I mean, Bernard was funny. He was always he was always a, a bundle of laughs. You know, and um, but you know, he had his ears were so big. He his 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 approach to to producing was so was so organic and it was so natural that it, 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 there was never a combative element in the process of making a, a record with Bernard. It was just, it was uh, just a, a, a vibe, a relaxation, uh, you know, and an emphasis on really trying to create some magic. And that's, that's what was so great About him, and it was always a learning experience in terms of um, because for him it was how it felt, how the music made you feel. You know, sometimes people are looking at precision or whatever, and they're looking for a different aspect of what is perfect to them. But I think uh, Bernard was able to tap into an aesthetic that, you know, kind of went beyond. what was happening musically there? You know, I mean, for example, um, the Riptide album that he produced for Robert Palmer, he knew when he had enough. He knew when, he, when there was enough on tape that, okay, let's stop here. We have enough. He was able to really determine that and therein create a discipline um, that, you know, when you, have, when, when you have someone that's producing a record that you feel comfortable with enough to say, I really think we have enough. And, and then, you know, to, to heed that advice and then it be such an enormous success is really something to say about a producer.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking probably, I mean, most of the ones that are really exceptional have that gift. Mm -hmm. That's part of what, you know, that gift means.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You feel it, you know, when there's enough and, um, you know, and that's, that's really important because I've seen artists take such an excessive and you know what, they're all equally successful. It's like, everybody's got their own method to their madness. I mean, Jim Steinman was the, was the opposite. I mean, Jim Steinman was, uh, I mean, he was, oh man, back in the two inch days, it was like, you know, tw- we had, uh, uh, 12, 12 reels of two inch tape on one track to to mix down you know I mean I had I literally had my own reel of 24 tracks you know for guitars you know and that was that was the way that that was the way that was his method to his madness and and enormously successful as well so there's no real there's no real give or take as to what's the right way or the wrong way but uh uh, but Bernard's way was so uh, there was an authenticity to it that uh, that I, I, I felt was special.
1: And When you're talking about characters, uh, got to bring up Don Blackman. Um, you were on his uh, record. That was a tremendous record.
0: Oh, uh, tremendous! Uh, Don Don was uh, Don and Denzel. Uh, those two guys, and they they played together with Lenny. You know, and uh, two immensely talented uh, musicians, Don Blackman man, he he believed in me so much. He just loved the way that I played. And that meant so much to me as a guitarist that he really loved the way that I played and he needed to have me on, on his album. And that meant so much to me because he was such an enormous talent, enormous. I mean, not only from his compositional His he was prodigious as a composer, and he had perfect pitch, and he just heard stuff, and he was just really, he was on a quest, and um, and for him to really want me to be a part of it, um, it meant so much to me. It's also the first time I heard Dennis um, Dennis Chambers too, and uh, I mean what what an amazing musician, you know, and it was really it was was. It was a heady experience working with Donald. It was organic, man. It was just like heavy.
1: Did you do any shows with him? I, I heard he used to do some crazy stunts on stage sometimes.
0: Oh, we did. You know, I did one. I did one show with it. it was um, it was uh, it was in DC. It was a Black Chamber of Commerce show, and uh, <laughs> and Donald just took this, took it all left, man. I think, I think Charlie Drayton was on the gig, I think. Um, I forget who else was on the gig, man, but it was like it was Cosmos, man. It was, it was Cosmos funk, and he took a tablecloth and he took the tablecloth from one of the one of the tables and cut a hole in it and pulled it over his head. So he had like this cape. He looked like some sort of uh, you know, superhero kind of cat, you know. He was just stranting around the stage with this tablecloth on his on his back and you know? was hilarious man the guy was just he was free he was free and 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 that's how it manifested in his music and his persona and his vibe on stage uh, total genius total genius don blackman mm-hmm. miss him
1: absolutely um and you you came out with your own record in 84 right that no lies project
0: yeah yeah um bernard facilitated that it's really interesting from doing sessions with bernard He'd hear me noodling on stuff, you know, and and uh, he heard this tune. He heard this riff from this song that I wrote called Trudy. And uh, he, you know, I was I would always in between takes or whatever, and I'm just noodling around, and I'm just like you know playing the ding 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 you know. And he says, "Hey, you know," he said, "you know, would you want to cut that as a demo and let's see if we can get you a record deal?" I says, "Sure." So uh, we we cut that with uh, uh, Steve Ferrone, Denzel Miller, myself, and Bernard, and Jason Corsaro behind the board. We cut that, and and uh, that enabled me to get my record deal. They heard it and they wanted to do it, and got a deal with with Cotillion Records, and Bernard produced it. Actually, that's Bernard's. Um, he told me that was that was the nucleus for what became. Power Station. Uh, subsequent to that, it was like it was really his first. I think one of his first solo productions. If it wasn't his first, as you know, outside of his own solo album, um, and um, and uh, you know, it was great fun to make that record. It was just an experience. It was really, um, it's really something when you get your first record deal. Even though when I was with Mother Night, that was like nineteen. When we had the deal, and I wasn't really writing, I, I you know I was just starting to really write, so there were none of my songs on the Mother Night album, uh, but for the single that came out uh, a year or two later, so all of a sudden I'm responsible, you know, for all the songs and all the lead vocals because I I um I sang before I played guitar professionally, and um, my first lead vocal was on. on um, um, on Lenny's uh, uh, album, uh, the third album, the third 29 album. Um, it's called Need You is the name of the song. The name of the, the album eludes me right now, but it's the third album. And, um, and so that was my first foray into doing lead vocals. And then, so I've got my own record deal and I've got to get my songs together. And uh, it was really a, an incredible experience it was It was an incredible experience to go in, cut my own tracks, do my vocals and and really kind of like, it's me, it's my music, it's my songs. And um, that was an enormous moment for me and, and Bernard facilitated that. These guys either huh? believe in you, you know, they believe in you more than some, how in some ways that you believe in yourself. and to have those kind of people through the through the years. Um, that maybe see something in me that I didn't see myself. Uh, that's that's enormous. That's enormous, Scott. I can't even begin to 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 you know convey the, the the sense of gratitude that I have for that.
1: How comfortable did you feel being more up front, you know, as opposed to in the background? And uh, did you do any shows at that point, just you know, with this material or or not?
0: No, I didn't do any any live shows. Um, unfortunately you know it's really interesting the the reviews of the album were really positive I mean they played it on American Bandstand when that was the barometer you know what I mean and you know spin a record it did like a. my, my, my goddaughter called me up and said Uncle Eddie Uncle Eddie they played your record on American Bandstand it got like a 94 or something like that you know it's but it just it kind of fell on deaf ears at the record label it was really interesting they didn't know how to categorize me You know, um, they they didn't, you know, they didn't know whether it was R&B or rock or, you know, it was, it was really, and, you know, it's like, hey, you know, just if it's good, it's good. (laughs) You know, it's like, but, you know, unfortunately, they just didn't know how to, they didn't know how to connect with marketing it in a way that would have, that more people would have heard it. So it's unfortunate, but it was a wonderful experience for me.
1: Yeah, so just obviously continue to your, your growth, uh, in all musical aspects. Um, and, um, you had, you know, you're working with people like Kashif, Billy Ocean, Nona Hendrix carryover from LaBelle, uh, George Howard, you mentioned Stanley Clark and, um, you were on David Lee Roths. I think that was his solo debut, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, really interesting. I mean, when I think about all those things happening, it's just like, you know it's like you 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 start off you can't get arrested you know <laughs> it's like and you just put one foot in front of the other and you know uh, you 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 take the defeats and you just dust them off you know what i mean and you just keep pursuing and um and you just want to keep those opportunities happening and it it just there was a point in the early 80s where there was just a, a harmonic convergence where everything just kind of like everything just fell in sync. And all these opportunities just started happening. And I just loved the diversity of it, uh, Scott. I just loved the diversity of, you know, you know, doing something with George Howard and then doing something, you know, with, you know, Run DMC and with Lenny and doing my own thing. It was, it was a very fruitful and robust time where you know, all the years that you're starving and trying to get ahead and trying to make some sense of this business, you know, finally it becomes a synchronicity where for at least several years there are things that are happening that are just really kind of like, uh, it's just, um, I was attracting all these myriad uh, artists to want me to play on their record. And um, uh, it it was fantastic. It was just fantastic.
1: And then you mentioned Robert Palmer. He came shortly after that. And uh, Mick Jagger uh, was in the mix.
0: Yeah, I've been working with Bill Laswell. And I was on a, I was on a rehearsal at a re- rehearsal studio on 30th Street somewhere. And I get a call. Uh, they, uh, my wife called the studio. And, and she said, uh, Bill Laswell wants to know whether you can be in the ha- Bahamas tomorrow to record with Mick Jagger. <laughs> I said, Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh so I just uh, hopped on a plane, went down to the Bahamas and and uh worked on Mix album and it was great. Sly and Robbie were there, Michael Shreve was there, Michael Henderson was there, Jeff Beck, and we, we started we started cutting tracks, you know, and uh I had worked with Sly and Robbie before with uh with Bill Aswell. So it was great to see them. They were happy to see me, you know, and um and uh, we started cutting tracks. He says, man, we've been trying to cut tracks for about a week now or so. <laughs> he says, man, and, you know, and uh, so, I mean, we cut, there was one track that we cut. It was just like, I think it was the title track was the first thing I worked on. And uh, we cut it in like in two takes. And man, this is, man, we've been trying to get this track for, you know, for a, a while, you know, I guess they didn't have any kind of like real funky rhythm stuff to kind of like, kind of kind of glue what was happening, you know? So it, it was, it, it really worked. And needed some really Shang lang stuff going on there, you know, because Jeff was doing his thing, was just like, oh man, working with, with Jeff back was just so great.
1: Was that the first time you got to meet him?
0: Um, no, actually, uh, Carmine Rojas and myself, we, we were playing with, uh, we were recording, we were recording in San Francisco, making the Chameleon album. And uh, back in those days, uh, Bill Graham used to have his day on the green. And I think it took place, at, it was at Oakland Stadium where, the, where the, uh, the Oakland A's played. And so many people were on the bill, Carlos Santana, Jeff Beck, I forget who else was on the bill. But long story short, we see Jeff Beck talking to Carlos Santana, me and Carmine, and we walk up to Jeff Beck and we introduced ourselves and you know, I said, man, you are a sick MF, I told him. <laughs> and he kind of he understood where I was coming from. I said, man, you are a bad, up. He says, and he, he just like, he just did a whole, this Cheshire grin, man. It was like, so cool. He just smiled and and he got it, you know? And, we, and that was really a term of endearment from us.
1: <laughs> and was that when he was uh, with the Jen Hammer band and, and had that yep. kind of? Yeah. yeah,
0: with Fernando Saunders on bass and stuff. It was an old buddy of mine still to this day, you know? And uh, yeah, those were was, was good times long time ago, but it was good. There was so much stuff going on. It was a very fruitful time. And, and, you know, it's the live music was so much more prevalent and, you know, and uh there was just every cylinder was 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 kind of kicking in, you know, in, in those days, relative to what, mid late seventies, through the eighties, the early nineties. It was a really kind of like a it was it was really an amazing time
1: so many players just kicked ass i mean just oh. so many virtuosos um and uh and also just you know experimentation and blending and mixing and just oh you know. yeah
0: yeah even the you know the aspects of recording were changing i mean the 80s were you know i mean these big dense reverbs and you know all that you know and, and and big amazing drum sounds i mean jason corsaro was like really one of the purveyors of of, of the sounds of, of that time, you know, everything from Power Station to Madonna's first album to Soundgarden, recorded all that stuff on Super Unknown. He was just really a, a real pioneer, real pioneer um, uh, from, from, from the aspect of recording. He was just a, he broke all the barriers. He's a, really a, a sonic iconoclast, in my opinion. And uh, he was a really incredible engineer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would I, w- I would describe some of that with Bill Laswell also, who you just mentioned, and you know, yeah, yeah, your your story with uh, Mick Jagger reminds me of the one Bernard Fowler told me about how he got introduced through Laswell to to Mick. Also, it was kind of uh-huh. a crazy oh, yeah. story. Oh so. man,
0: with Bill Laswell, man, I mean, I have worked on so many kind of interesting projects. Uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto was really one of the highlights. Working with Ryuichi, and then working on the Sly and Robbie album. I think it was called Barriers or something like that. I think, you yeah. know, and, uh, and man, Bill, Bill, man, his style of, it's so many, like these great, great producers, man, they have their style, man. It's like, it's kind of like, ugh, Bill didn't have to communicate very much with me in terms of what he was looking for, because he, he would either put the track would have been up already or something like that. And, and, you know, he would just like, here, check it out. Let me know, and I would hear stuff, and he liked what he, he liked what I was doing, you know. So it was a really it was that, that kind of a process, and you know, he he'd give me these little signals, you know, some some really some funny kind of insular shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> like when it was happening, you know what I mean? It's like you know, you know, it's really, I mean, oh man, working with Bill was a joy. It was always a snap, always fun, always creative, and. Um, if you heard shit he would let you go he would let you go and just search and what more can you what more can you ask for
1: yeah well you have a guy there who really apparently is not very concerned about sales and record companies he just wants to you know push the envelope
0: true yep always a with that guy
1: you also recorded with steve winwood several times
0: yeah, I, I recorded, you know, I remember um, I worked on, uh, uh, oh gosh, Back in the High Life, Higher Love and Freedom Overspill. Those are the two uh, tracks that I worked off on that album. Steve Winwood is just, wow. When I was playing, putting guitars on that, on on those tracks, actually Jason was engineering when I put my guitars on. And I'm listening to these reference vocals that sound so damn good. And, you know, Russ Adamant saying, oh, those are some reference vocals. It's shit, They sound like keepers to me. I mean, really just a wonderful musician. I mean, Steve Winwood is a great musician, artist, um, very particular, very, very, very kind of focused, really razor-like focus on, on the musicality uh, of everything that he does nice guy i haven't seen him in a long time but a wonderful wonderful guy and and musician
1: how many of these did you have a sense were going to be major hits you know like did you think david lee roth was going to like be a big hit did you think that the steve you know higher love was going to be a big hit and so on
0: i knew i knew that um the higher love and freedom overspill were going to be big records um you you get that feeling addicted to love i knew it was going to be a big hit. uh, Simply Irresistible, I knew that was gonna be enormous. And when Robert's album came out, they put Discipline of Love, which is a killer track, but to me, it's not a number one song. And um, and uh, Bernard said he was gonna have some meetings with Island Record, Records because he was imploring that they release Addicted to Love. And the rest is history, they released that. And um, it just methodically went up the charts. It went straight to number one. And um, Simply Resistible, I think it went to number one worldwide. I think in the States, it went to number two. Uh, Bobby McFarren's uh, tune, uh, Don't, don't worry. worry, Be Happy. And, uh, but uh, to me, I mean, Robert's tune is a much more significant, impactful, kind of emblematic of that decade than Don't Worry, Be Happy. You know, No offense to mr mcferrin but uh my opinion
1: yeah i'm with you so uh what was robert palmer like to work with
0: the absolute best the absolute best robert was always about the music he was such a musicologist in this from the aspect that he listened to everything i mean he can go from billy Holiday to sepultura you know in a heartbeat and have it on the same cassette i mean uh Um, He was just all about music, was really into African music and South African music in particular, Juju and High Life and things like that. And he really studied it. He studied it with African percussionists. So he really knew about juxtaposing rhythms and things like that. He was he was really a wonderful person to work with and explore with. And um, it's like, you know, the solo on Simply Irresistible, which is not, you know, it's not your typical You know rock or pop solo it's really kind of like it's 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 like a hodgepodge of like uh you know intervallic openings and you know like almost like a quasi-chromatic boppy kind of heavy metal riff and then some sonic dive bombs and then almost like a whole tone scale that is descending you know at the end of it and I I wasn't conscious of what I was doing that's just that's what I was hearing you know, and that's how it came out. And Robert loved it, you know, and it was really kind of, I mean, you're thinking it's like, you know, over 30 years ago. And it was really kind of radical when I think about it relative to from the aspect of, of what uh, Top 40 Radio was about. Mm-hmm. So I'm really proud of that from, from the aspect that he was willing to, you know, take a chance with something that was really out of the box in terms of how I approached the guitar solo. It was a heck of, heck of a lot of fun to do. And to see it just really blossom and become an enormous hit was just really, was, was really, really cool. And it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Robert was the kind of guy that was, he was so consistent in his character and his demeanor. And he was pragmatic, but he was always cool. He was always affable. He was always approachable. Um, never any of these rock and roll star airs. You know, none um, of uh, you know because there's some rock stars. They could be, you know, you know, they're cool and they're. Then the next day, <laughs> you're around them and it's like they they wear they got their shades on and they don't speak to anybody. You know what I mean? It's like you've got these wide spectrums of of attitude. You know, and Robert was always the same way. It was just like really kind of like even keel, you know, and a great sense of humor and. Um, you know just uh just have the greatest experiences with robert on stage and in studio and just hanging out I, he's another guy that i miss dearly
1: well so in in general when you would work with these guys and these let's say um contrast if you would you know more of a uh, pop approach like a robert palmer or steve winwood versus maybe some of the more esoteric stuff that you did in general, how much would you be guided in what you were expected to play or produce versus coming up with it on your own, like you did with that solo you were just talking about?
0: Well, you know, as you evolve as a, as a musician or as a studio player, and um, in some ways, it's kind of like if someone's a, an actor and they're all of a sudden like in an enormous movie. You know, and they're gonna want that guy because he did that. And in some ways, that's that's what happens to you. I tell people you have to be able to hear shit. And what I mean by that is that, you know, a lot of the times you you get to the studio and there's like a, a rough track, and but there are a lot of holes, and you've got to hear stuff to fill those holes up and things that are kind of complementary to the music. Um to the melody, uh, what's being sung and how to, how to create parts and things to fundamentally uh, structure the song foundationally as we spoke before. And then also to be able to hear stuff that really complements in terms of flourishes and little sparkles and things like that, depending on where the song is. And I just love that, you know, cause sometimes you're working on things that it's all inside. It's all that kind of inside chordal stuff that you're doing that's really supplementing a vocal or augmenting what a keyboard player is doing or what a bass player is doing. And it's that kind of all that stuff that sits right there that creates that bed. I love that, too, as much as I, I, you know, love doing the big, crunchy guitar solos on Addicted to Love. But I was fortunate that I had opportunities to do both. So I really wasn't typecast. I was I mean, there were some producers that called me up for for just the the clean, funky and the pop stuff, like Russ Tyleman would call me up for funk pop and funk stuff, mostly. then Jim Stein would call me up for big mondo guitars and also clean stuff and acoustics and and Robert would call me up to to play play the whole three sixty because his his music was really kind of all over the place. I mean, he's doing, you know, doing Joe Beam tunes and he's doing standards and he's doing tunes that are really metally and tunes that are pop rock and that are funk pop. And, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like everything. And I love that because, I mean, when we worked on Heavy Nova, the first album, the first, the first day that I just got off the plane um, and I'm playing on this tune, this Bossa Nova tune called Between Us. And uh, it was acoustic and, and, you know, and You you never know what it's gonna be. You know, that's what was so much that was so much fun. Is Hmm. the unknown.
1: (laughs) Now, uh, it wasn't on here, but I am pretty sure that you played with Trouble Funk and also with Bootsy. Is that right?
0: I I, actually that was with Bill Laswell. And that was at uh quadraphonic studios in in New York. That's quite a while ago. And uh, I remember working on a bunch of tracks. Dennis Chambers played on some of that stuff. It was, Jason uh, was on the on the console, I believe, uh, recording. That was some funky stuff. I don't know if it's, I know that it's come out, but I, I haven't heard it in so long. And I don't know whether I heard the iterations that I played on or, but I know I played on some of that stuff, you know, and uh, it was great fun. It was Funkin' and it was rockin'. And Bootsy Collins is a bad cat. He is a bad cat. And he's a great rhythm guitarist too. He can play some funky ass rhythm guitar big time. Cause his brother, I mean, his brother was just a master of that when they played with, with uh, James Brown. So he's got that thing going on big time. Uh, absolute, so much fun work with Bootsy Collins, man. What a talent. It's great. And then work with Bill. Oh man, <laughs> oh man, oh that's, that's some great stories, man. Great stories of recording with those guys. Some funny shit. Um,
1: why well, have Steve Salas on Stevie Salas? And uh, he was on that Bootsy record too. I know that was one of his early, early yeah, gigs.
0: He's on there too. And uh, Stevie worked with Bootsy quite a bit. Stevie's an old buddy of mine, man. Gosh, we go back.
1: And then Jody Watley, you're on her record.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Work with Jody. And gosh, I remember her when she was, I think I remember when, when I did, uh, when LaBelle was on Soul Train, I think she was probably one of the dancers. She and, uh, and Jeffrey Daniels, I think. I know Jeffrey was a Soul Train dancer and they both wound up being in, in Shalimar with Howard Urit, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I did work on her solo album with Bernard. That was a great fun. That was a, that was a really good record.
1: And Tina Turner, you've worked with many times, right?
0: Yeah, I worked with Tina. First time I worked with Tina was at Live Aid uh, with with Jagger, and the first time I met her was uh, really um, we had a rehearsal the night before at JFK Stadium, and um, it was just about late late afternoon, early evening. It was not quite dusk yet, but um, it was like an empty JFK stadium except for the crew and the riggers and everybody you know on stage and the techs and stuff in the band and uh, we, we ran through we ran through the set that we were going to do the following night at Live Aid and man that was that was so electric that was amazing because when you rehearse with Jagger, it's 110 percent even if it's at a sound check or rehearse it's it was balls to the walls, you know, metal to the pedal, you know, it was just insane. I'm saying, oh man, this is going to be insane. So the following, following night comes in by 1030, we go on some, somewhere around there. And the energy from the audience, Scott, was so profound. It was like they were matching the decibels that we were putting out on the, on the stage. So it was like, these two enormous energies, kind of, you know, meeting meeting together, and it was the fastest twenty minutes of my life. It was amazing. Uh, the energy was so it was so profound, and even this is you know well before you know um, smartphones and cameras and stuff. But it seemed as if everyone in that audience had a flash. So I'm seeing flashes as I'm looking out into the, really the, the abyss, but all you're seeing is all these little sparkles, you know, from people taking photographs or whatever. It was, it was really an amazing, an amazing uh, feeling, an amazing feeling, and uh, so much energy. You just like, after you finish doing a show like that, you, you, you put down your instrument, but you're still on. You know what I mean? You're really, there's so much adrenaline, so much energy that, uh, you know, you, you, it's, wow. <laughs> it's really amazing. Yeah, How do you ever
1: wind down and get to sleep after that?
0: You don't. You don't. You just, the, you know, watch an old movie forever.
1: <laughs> you know. Oh. Mick Jagger is just like, a, you know, a wonder of, of nature or something, because I understand the show they're doing now. That he's he's 78. He's running around for two and a half hours and like a 40-year-old.
0: Yeah, he's he's in incredible shape. He's always been, you know, um when I, I work with him quite extensively on on his album. You know, so I work with him in the Bahamas and work with him in New York, uh, uh when we recorded a power station for really quite a bit. I work with I think almost not the every rhythm section, but almost um almost every rhythm section on that record. I work with uh, Michael Shreve and Michael Henderson, uh, um, Sly and Robbie. Um, you, when you think about that album, um, what was cut and what was released are two different things. So I cut tracks with Steve Gad, Will Lee, Richard T and Sid McGinnis on one track, then cut tracks with Anton Fade and Will Lee. Uh, Anton, um, Steve Ferroni and Bernard Edwards. There's so much stuff in the can, so much stuff in the can from from uh, from that she's the boss album. And actually, some there's, there are some songs that wound up on subsequent albums, but they recut them with with uh, with uh, their uh, other players that they were using at the time, that he, uh, Mick was using at the time. So, um, but there's some really cool that track. There's a track with with Gad. And Will Lee and Richard T, that's
1: just killing. So it must boggle your mind sometimes what does not come out.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it does. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the can that, that you know, I guess eventually if they choose to, they'll release someday, you know. I'm wondering about with Robert, if there's any, I'm wondering if there's anything in the can that we did that hasn't been released. I know there's some obscure things that were B-sides of certain singles that, um there's a, a a tune called Remember to Remember. And um then there's this funk uh tune, um So Emboldened. Man, dial that up. That is a funky tune. So emboldened with Claire Fisher's strings on there. It is it's it's, it's nasty.
1: You worked with Shaka Khan?
0: Yeah, I worked um, oh, I I worked on an album of hers with um Oh man, the bass player. Oh, his name eludes me. Could be Brathwaite, Wayne Brathwaite. I think was a bass player, uh, great bass player. He passed away years ago, and um, he uh, he produced that up. I played on tracks on that, and then I um, then I did something with Russ Tylerman for, uh, for Shaka, um, for that. Um, Oh, um, that movie that came out with Run DMC and Sheila E. Oh.
1: Um, crush. Um, crush like Groove. That.
0: Yeah. Crush Groove, yeah. Yeah. Did a, a track with Shock and then also did something with Arif and Philippe says for um, for the Miami Vice soundtrack back in the day. So, yeah, there have been several several tracks that I worked on, uh, with the, of Shoppers. So main singer, I mean just really you know it's kind of like uh, when you think about the great great singers of our time you know the Aretha, Patti LaBelle Shaka Khan, Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight uh, you know then you, then you have like the the Ella Fitzgeralds and the Saravons and stuff like that and you know Peggy Lee and you know just great 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 singers of, of, of that style but you know they're kind of like they almost kind of reincarnated in, 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 in a modern context, because it's such there, there's, there are very interesting parallels relative to presence and, and voice and things like that. It's just, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Shaka happens to be my number one female singer.
0: Oh man. She's, she's, she's got a texture and, um, uh, her phrasing. And I just love how certain vocalists pronounce certain letters, certain phrases. And uh, Shaka has a way of pronouncing the letter R in some of the words as she's singing that are just like say, you know, a song, I forget. But like if she says, if she's singing together, just the way she that last syllable. Yeah, you know there's something that she does, man. When she hits an R, it just kills me. It's just like, okay, I just fall on the floor and just, you know, amazing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about it in that term, but you're totally right. Yeah. I hear it. Um, so you mentioned the live aid show. I was certainly going to ask you oh, to pick, yeah. I was going to ask you if there were one or two shows that you've done that were the most unforgettable It sounds like the live aid was certainly one of them, I'm guessing, but, but were there, uh, you know, some others?
0: Yeah, there were uh, several with, with Robert Palmer that were just really incredible and, and they weren't always like the massive big gig, you know, we, we, you know, we played Wembley, the indoor Wembley, and uh, that was, that was good. That was big, but, um, we did a, we did a show in Camden at a, at a, at a venue called town and country. And, uh, that was we did two shows there, and uh, those shows were really, really unbelievable. You know, it was just like magical, and uh, the music transcends, and you just kind of go clear. You know, that was an expression we used in those days, when, uh, when, when the energy and the music just kind of become one, and you kind of like. Uh, you kind of like in another dimension that you you just it's like it's equivalent to a, you know uh, to an athlete being in a zone, you know, and it, 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 that really happens for musicians too. You just get you get into this different plane, and that happened several times. And I remember one time it happened in a in a club in Munich, and Robert had a pension for you know for working in you know you do the the Odeon Hammersmith and you play the big venues, and all of a sudden you go into some funky club in Munich so we were playing in Munich you know and uh, my buds from Rod Stewart's band they had a night off so they came down to, to check out our show in this this funky club in Munich and it was just one of those nights and it was just really it was just really special really really special the whole tour was special but those were the standout those were the standout uh, um, shows and you know I just loved it because it was one of those tours there the production, the production, uh, you know, wasn't like a fancy stage with, you know, all this kind of fancy, you know, uh, pyrotechnic and all that kind of shit. It was just a backline, you know, and it was, and just we were, everybody was just really, you know, all cylinders were kicking in, and those are some great, great moments. But yeah, yeah, you know, those, those, those moments are so special, so special.
1: Yeah. the audience feels that too. I mean, it's what's special all around, you know, it's just, everyone becomes, you know, one really, you know, on this.
0: Yeah. You know, the energy is, is, is reciprocal and that's, what's so beautiful. It's kind of like, you know, sometimes you do some gigs and the audience is kind of like, okay, show me, you know, and and that happens, you know, and like it's usually the bigger markets too, you know, (laughs) it's, uh, you know, you go to other markets and, and people are so much more appreciative of what you're doing. And there's a genuine sense of gratitude. And, um, and uh, they reciprocate in kind um, with just loving what you do. And they demonstrably show you that. And when they do that, you know, it just makes you want to give everything you have feasibly possible energy wise, you know, to give them and leave them with. And to me, that's, that's what it's about.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon, or consider donating at funkandstuff.net. Thank you very much.